Amen. Thank you, Byron. It's great to be with you today. I cannot tell you how much I have been looking forward to being here this week. I've been traipsing across the country sharing just what uh, Byron shared. Uh, God gave me some things to put in a book, and I'm going to be telling you about some of those today. But uh, I'm going to tell you something. You haven't disappointed. Okay? The Lord through you has been good this morning, and I appreciate you uh, having me. Well, what if I were to tell you that after 20 years of counseling, preaching, and teaching, that Christians have told me some of the greatest secrets that they've never told anyone else? And this morning, I have permission to share a few of those with you. This lady sat down with me and very calm, very quiet. And she said, Mark, I want people to become a Christian, but I don't want them to become a Christian and wind up feeling miserable like me. And she's name is Candace, married to an attorney, four beautiful kids, and yet she was struggling. And, and then th- th- there was a guy who, who came. He was in ministry, actually. He was a student pastor named Jacob. And, 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 he, and he said to me, Mark, he said, I've been to my Christian friends. I've been to my mentor, who's actually a megachurch pastor. And I've got this sin habit that I just can't overcome. And I've asked every one of them, what do I need to do? Of course, they prayed for him and different things. But they said, the main thing you need to do is you need to read your Bible more and pray longer. And he said, I've greatly increased all of that. He said, the reality is, I'm worse than I was before. And then Geraldo, with tears in his eyes, said to me, you know, Mark, I I thought if I did all the right things that God wanted me to do, that he wouldn't let anything bad happen to me. Boy, was I wrong. He just lost his job. And his four-year-old daughter had contracted a very rare disease. Now, these represent thousands of people that I and our ministry have seen through the years who've, who've held these secrets and revealed them to us. And I want you to know that in all of these cases, they just did not know how to get beyond where they were. And in fact, I would say it this way. It was almost as if it was a secret to them. And I've discovered through the years, as has our ministry, many people whom we teach and whom we counsel, whom we disciple, have echoed that same idea. And here's how they often say it. Why hasn't anybody told me this before? It's in the scriptures I've never heard it. I don't understand it. You see, it was a secret to them. And so when God led me to write the book that Byron spoke about today, I titled the book, God's Best Kept Secret. He's not keeping it a secret, but it's like it was a secret. And then the subtitle is Christianity is easier than you think. So I want to share with you today three of the many issues that I address in the book about the grace of God and the freedom we have and the victory we have in Christ. And I want to 
look at those today with you and hopefully encourage you in your own personal life. So the first issue is this. Christians don't need to view God as religious. A very common thing, by the way. And by by religious, I mean this, that it's the idea that we believe that God is up in heaven, and when he looks at you and me, he's disappointed most of the time. You know, we're kind of wondering what's going to happen when we go to heaven. We think when he sees Billy Graham, he's going to be over there just high-fiving and laughing and everything. And when he sees you and me, he's just going to cross his arms and say, I'm just kind of glad you made it here. And we think he's that way and, and, and that he, 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 he's, he's stern and he's a, he's, he punishes. Every time we have a flat tire, we're like, oh, what did I do wrong today? And we see him that way. He's, he's about rule keeping. Sometimes we have a mixture of that along with grace. It's called Galatianism. It's called a hybrid gospel. Now, I want to show you one scripture all the way back in the beginning of time that shows us that God is not religious. And it's found in Genesis. And in this, uh, well, well, we'll get to that in a moment. So hold on to that. It's going to be in Genesis 2. We'll show it on the screen. But before I do that, I want to give you something that's in the book. I'm just going to give you part of it. But I want to give you something called the God is quiz give you an idea of what you think about God. And here's how I'm going to set this up. As they used to say in school, first thing that comes to your mind, that's your answer. Don't overthink it. Second thing I want to say to you is I want you to think back on one of the worst days of your life and answer these questions as if you're in that moment, in that time period. Could have been last week, could have been last year, could have been 10 years ago. So here we go. The God is quiz. Number one, I enjoy God because he is a loving father. Number two, I know God loves me no matter what happens. Number three, God is proud of me just because I am his child. Number four, I obey God because he loves me, not so he'll love me more. Number five, I feel very comfortable calling God dad or papa. Number six, I'm afraid of God's punishment when I sin. Number seven, I feel as though I can never please God. Number eight, I believe I must do the right things to get closer to God. Number nine, I feel as though God is often disappointed with me. And number 10, God seems good when good things happen to me. Well, how did you do? Well, let me help you with your answer just for a moment. If you answered the first five is true and the second five is false, you have a very good view of God. If you didn't do quite that well, the good news is the Lord through me today is here to help. So let's look 
at that Genesis 2 scripture that I mentioned earlier so we can see why God is not religious. And it goes all the way back to the creation of Adam. And in that, we not only see why God created Adam, we also see an answer to a question. Why did God create you and me? Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So I want you to put your place, put yourself in Adam's place for a moment. I want you to be Adam for a minute. You're laying on the ground. God has formed you from the dust of the ground, and yet you're not alive yet. You're laying there perfect. You're on your back. And it tells us here in this scripture something pretty amazing. It says that God breathed into Adam as he lay there the breath of life. In the Hebrew, the word breath is the word ruach. You can almost hear the wind in that, can't you? And this is speaking of the spirit of God. So when God breathed into him, it was not only oxygen or or what we would know as that kind of breath. At the same time, it was the Holy Spirit coming into Adam in that moment. So we see Adam there. We see Jesus leaning over him, the Father through Jesus, because all things came through Jesus, of course. All things were made by him and for him and through him. He breathes over into Adam, looks at him. What an intimate view. Isn't that amazing? He, he leans over and he breathes into Adam the breath of life. And Adam opens his eyes. And the first thing he sees is his maker, the Lord. It gets better, by the way. It gets better. Because the word life in the phrase breath of life, is actually plural. It literally says that God breathed into Adam the breath of lives, which sounds kind of weird, unless you understand what he's really after here. And what he's saying in this is that Jesus also came to live in Adam, and also the Father came to live in Adam, So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of God all came to indwell Adam, uniting themselves to him. And then that verse finishes by saying that Adam became a living being. You know what that tells us? As humans, we were created for God to live in us. And we're only fully human. We're only really alive when God is in us. And that's what salvation is really about today. Is us becoming fully human, fully alive, because God himself is in us. But then we have to think, well, okay, what was that about? We know the story, but what what was going on there? Well, we know from Scripture that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had this amazing relationship between themselves. There was tremendous love between Father, Son, and Spirit. They loved each other. They had joy with each other. They liked each other. It's good to be loved, but it's great to be liked, isn't it? 
And it was such a great relationship for all eternity past that some people have called it a divine dance. And that's the picture we get of Father, Son, and Spirit enjoying each other within the Trinity. That's how they function. And the idea we see in Scripture is the Father said, yeah, we've got the angels, but let's do something different. Let's create a creature that we can actually unite ourselves to and invite them into this intimacy we have. And you know what that tells you and me? We've been invited not into the fellowship of the ring, but we've been invited into the fellowship of the Trinity. God came to live in Adam so we could be loved first and foremost. God has come to live in you so you can be loved first and foremost. But then, not only that, when Eve comes along, God also indwelled her, and we see in that that God came to live in us to love us, but he also came to live in us to express himself through us to love other people with the love of the Father and the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Look, if God had been religious, as soon as Adam opened his eyes, he would have said, stand up, pal. Here's the Ten Commandments. Here's, what, here's how you live. And he would have just held them up. Here they are. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. He didn't give them the Ten Commandments. You know why? Because you don't need them when you're in a relationship where you're dependent. You don't need them when you're in a relationship when God is in you. You don't need those when you're in a relationship when God is working through you to be a blessing to other people got something so much better. That's why Hebrews says that Jesus is superior to Moses. He's better. And that's what we see here. God did not create us to be religious because he's not religious. And that's the first thing I want us to see today, the first issue that I want us to face. Now, that has to do with our relationship or our view about God. Let's talk now about your view about you, because that is very important. And that leads us to the second issue I want us to look at today. Christians don't need to call themselves sinners. So a few questions to set this up. Can a Christian be an alcoholic? Can a Christian be a liar? Can a Christian be a sinner? Would you like to know the answer to those questions? Okay, I'll tell you later. (laughs) But this issue that we are looking at here has to do with what was already mentioned earlier today by someone. It has to do with the word identity. An identity, when it comes to you and me, is about who we are in the deepest core of our being. It goes beyond our body. It goes beyond the wonderful personality God gave you. And it's even deeper than that. And it's in that core that we find out who we really, really are. You see... When we look back in the garden, 
God had given Adam and Eve an identity because they'd been created in his image, right? I don't think you can get a much better identity than being created in the image of God, do you? That's a fantastic identity to have. But we read a little further in Genesis 3, and we see the great temptation that occurred. Where Satan, the serpent, comes to Adam and Eve and tempts them. You see, God had said, from any tree you may eat except for one, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And if you eat from that tree in the day you do, you will surely die. Well, he comes to them and he begins to engage Eve. I used to wonder, where is Adam? Was he over playing golf in some other part of the garden? Actually, if you read the passage clearly, he's just standing right there just saying nothing. And the enemy is engaging Eve, and she is responding to that. And in that whole temptation that we don't have time to look at all of today, he was basically saying to them, hey, go ahead and eat from that tree God said not to eat from. You go ahead and do that. And Eve says, no, 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 we've been told not to do that by God because he said if we do, if we eat it or touch it, we'll die. Listen to the response and listen to the lies that we're going to see in this about identity and about God. Genesis 3, 4 through 5. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, there's so much deception and lies in that. We don't have time to look at every one of them. You will be like God. Guess what? They already were. They already were. Creator names in his image, right? And so here's what I want us to see in this when it has to do with the idea of identity. Satan said to them, and he says the same thing to you and me. What God has done to you in your identity is not enough. In fact, you're not enough. And because you're not enough, you need to do something, anything, to make yourself better, to improve yourself. Even if it means disobeying God. Even if it means sinning just so you will feel better about yourself. You know what happened that day? Of course, we know the end of that story, don't we? Adam and Eve both ate from that tree. And when they did, God departed from them. We get our identity from God being in us. God departed from them because there was no forgiveness for sin back then. Why? There was no sacrifice for sin yet. And not only did he depart, that place in them, their human spirit that he had created when he breathed into Adam, it died. Because God said, you're going to die. They didn't die physically. They didn't die in their personality or soul, even though there were consequences there. 
they died in their spirit. Their identity died. A friend of mine says it this way. They got born again backwards. And it wasn't good. You know what that is? You know what happened in that time? I say it this way in the book. That was the first ever identity theft. And there was no life lock back then to restore that. And so ever since then, we've all been searching for our identity. Everybody. And we've been privileged to be on eight continents in our ministry. And everywhere we go, it doesn't matter the culture. When you start talking about this issue, people perk up, they listen, and they're nodding in agreement saying, I know what you're talking about. Let me tell you some of the ways that you and I have searched for our identity and where we've searched for our identity. Most of us start in actually a good place. We search, we look to our parents to tell us who we are. Uh, I talked to a guy named Juan, and I said, Juan, uh, tell me about, you know, growing up for you a little bit. He said, Mark, he said, it kind of went this way. When I disobeyed my parents, I'd be locked in a room for 48 hours with no food and no bathroom breaks. And he said, sometimes I didn't even know what I did wrong. You know what he thought his identity was? was this. What's wrong with me that my parents would treat me like this? And so he had what is called a shame-based identity. A shame-based identity is this. I not only do things wrong, I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with who I am. Or people wouldn't treat me this way. Now, on the other hand, I talked to a guy named John. Same name, by the way. One's Spanish, one's English, right? But John, different guy, though. And uh, John said, I grew up in a great Christian home. Mark, when you start talking about identity, he said, I grew up in a great Christian home. My parents loved me. They taught me that God loves me. And he said, they affirmed me. They encouraged me. And it's really made me into the person I am today. I said, I said, John, that is just awesome. But I got one question for you. Did your parents teach you who you are in Christ? He said, I don't think we covered that. I said, well, John, you know what? You're searching for your identity just like everybody else. And you still haven't found it. Then we look to our friends, don't we? We're hoping that they will tell us who we are. We're hoping that they will give us an idea of our identity. There's a guy named Mario. He spoke with me, and he'd heard me speak, and he said, man, he said, I know what you're talking about, about the whole identity thing and how we look for it. He said, my life was great until about fifth grade. And in fifth grade, two things happened to me in about one month. He said, I got braces and I got glasses. I had great friends until then. They hung around me. But all of a sudden, they were joining in with my other friends as they were yelling at me, saying, close your mouth, metal mouth. We don't want to see that smile. Don't look at us four eyes. We don't want you to look at us. And so from that, Mario, as a man, grew up with this identity. 
I'm ugly. That's just me. I'm just ugly. And he was a believer, but he saw himself that way deep down. That's how he saw himself. And we all look to our friends too, and those peers can be very unkind to us. We've got something unusual in our day that many, most, nobody's had until the last few years. It's called social media. Jane steps into my office. She sits down, and she slams her hand down on the chair, and she says to me, I hate Facebook, like some of you in here, by the way. I said, well, Jane, why do you hate Facebook? She says, because on Facebook, my friends all have a perfect life, a perfect family, a perfect husband, and they, have, uh, uh, they go to perfect vacations, and they feel perfectly every day. She said, that's not my life. I don't, I don't feel that way. She said, I struggle. Things don't go well always for me. You know what's happening? Jane was looking to these friends, who, by the way, were lying, just so you'll know. That wasn't true. That's not true. And they were lying, and she was looking to them and comparing herself to them and trying to get a sense of who she was. That's why she's so angry, because she didn't measure up. Do you know that research has shown us that people who spend too much time on social media are depressed? You want to guess why? One of the reasons is what we just looked at with Jane. They're comparing themselves to other people. Of course, there can be bullying, too. We know that goes on, too. That'll make you depressed. But they compare themselves to other people, and they don't measure up. And that's how they see themselves. I'm just not good enough. I just don't measure up. And we're not talking about those who don't know Christ. We're talking about those who do as well. They're not immune from that. One more that I'll cover today that, again, many more of these in the book, but uh, it's called performance. You know, it's good to perform well on your job, right? You want to do a good job. It's good to perform well when you go work out. That's great. But when we take performance and we put the hook of acceptance in that, that my performance determines whether or not I'm acceptable, that my performance gives my acceptance from you and from you and from you so I can accept myself, then we're in trouble. Michael Jackson, the late Michael Jackson, was interviewed one time. And I I tell you what, I appreciated the honesty with which he answered this question. He was asked this, why do you do it? Michael, why do you travel the world and, and perform before millions of people every year? And his answer was simply this, I do it because I want people's acceptance. He was more honest than some of us because we do some of the same stuff, don't we? That's the upside-down world that we live in. Well, here's the good news for all of us. Jesus has replaced our stolen identity. You can stop looking. You don't have to keep looking for it. And, And there's two things we need to understand as far as him replacing this. You see, the culture you and I live in tells us this. It says your behavior determines your identity. Think about that. Your behavior determines your identity. 
But that's not how the kingdom of God operates. That's how the kingdom of the enemy operates, through culture. You see, God tells you that your birth defines your identity. Our first birth into this world made us sinners. That's right. You ever notice that dogs like to bark, especially at like 3 o'clock in the morning? You ever notice that? How many of you know this, that barking doesn't make it a dog? There are other animals that can actually bark, but they're not dogs. But dogs bark because they're dogs. You and I are born into this world as sinners. And because of that, we we know in the story of Nicodemus in John 3, we don't have time to look at it, that this is a big issue because Nicodemus, one night, he, 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 was a, you know, he was a Pharisee. He was a spiritual leader among the Jews, probably wealthy because of that. But he knew this Jesus had something that he needed. And so he kind of slinked around people's house. He was hiding behind the shadows. He didn't want anybody to see him. He came at night to meet Jesus, which is why I call him Nick at night, by the way. <laughs> and he starts asking Jesus questions, and Jesus turns the whole issue to, guess what? Identity. That's why he said you must be born again. Why? Because you've got the wrong identity, Nicodemus. And we're all born with the wrong identity. It's called, it's called sinner. That's the identity that we're born with. But the good news is Jesus has replaced that stolen identity, that dead identity, that sinner identity with a new identity. And as children of God, because we believe in him, He says something pretty amazing about you and me. He calls us saints. And saint simply means someone who's set apart for God, or it also means somebody who's holy. Depending on your background, you may think, there's no way I can be a saint. My grandmother was a saint. She prayed for me. She prayed me into the kingdom. Now, she was a saint. And maybe Mother Teresa was a saint. Because, man, look how she sacrificed when she was here. And, and you can look around all the different things. You know, it doesn't matter what you or I think about this. God's got the final word on it. He's the one that over 60 times in the New Testament calls believers a saint. I want you to turn to the person to your left and say, you're a saint. And to your right, you're a saint. And now I want you to look at me, and on three, you're going to say this. Let's make it personal. On three, you're going to say, I am a saint. Not, not me, you. On three, on three. One, two, three. I am a saint. Why are you laughing? Hard to accept, isn't it? Hard to believe. You know what the good news is? You're a saint when you obey God, and even when you sin, you're just as much a saint as when you didn't. That hasn't changed. It doesn't change. It never changes. And that's just one of the many things our Father says about who we are. And he doesn't just say it because he's pretending or saying you'll be that one day. He's saying it because it's true now, because of the new birth that Jesus spoke of. I want to show you an example of this in Scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians, and it's 1 through 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 2. And here's what he says to this church. To the church of God that is in Corinth, those who have been, to those, sancti- to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
called to be saints according together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He says not only the Corinthians were called saints, everybody who calls on the name of Jesus is a saint. But that's not what I really want you to see. What I really want you to see is this church had terrible behavior. It was awful. They were so immature in the Lord that Paul wasn't even sure they were Christians, but he believed they were. Here's some of the things that were happening. There were men who had businesses in the church. They struggled in their business between each other, and they would take each other to court and sue each other. And then there was, uh, there was a situation happening where there, there was a, a stepson who was sleeping with his stepmother, and I don't mean taking naps. And the church was just allowing it, and they all knew it. Everybody knew it. They were letting it go on. And then when they had communion, or maybe depending on your background, you may notice the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, could be, could be whatever you're used to. When they would have that, they would also bring a meal. And the rich people, they'd bring a ton of food, but they wouldn't share it. And the poor people either didn't bring any because they didn't have any to bring, or they brought so little they didn't get full. And so you see this dichotomy happening here. And apparently there was wine left over after communion that some people got a hold of and got drunk before everybody went home. And yet Paul starts this by, he doesn't say you bunch of sinners, get it straightened out, get right with God. He says to the saints in Corinth. If there was ever a a passage, if there was ever a letter in the New Testament that lets us know behavior doesn't define us, this is it. Now, there was some correction he brought to them. Don't get me wrong. But he did it by calling them who they were. That's where he started. When you start believing who God says you are, guess what? You'll change. You will change. Because God will use the truth of that through his spirit to bring about change in your life that you probably have not been able to bring about. You know, uh, my oldest son is here today, which I'm very thankful for. He's right back here in the back. Wave. That's my oldest son. But I have two other sons. And uh, Christopher is the youngest, and then Ben is number two. He's the second one. I want to tell you a story that happened. This has to do with identity. So when they were a lot younger, uh, I heard all this commotion happening in the house, and I wasn't sure what was, what was going on. I, just, I hear this running, and I hear things getting bumped against. And finally, I start hearing what Ben is saying to Christopher, and, and Ben is chasing Christopher, and Christopher is about this tall at the time, and Ben is about this tall at the time. And somehow, Christopher is staying just out of Ben's reach as they're running through the house. His little legs are just going, and, you know, Ben just can't quite catch him. And so what Ben is saying to Christopher is this, you're a tattletale, and I'm going to get you. You can guess what happened, can't you? He told my wife something Ben did that he was not supposed to have done, and Ben was disciplined for that, and he wasn't happy, and he figured out what went on, that Christopher's the only one who saw him do it, went to my wife and told him, so now he's angry at Christopher. And so he just keeps yelling, you're a tattletale. I'm going to get you. You're a tattletale. I'm going to get you. And Christopher somehow just stays in front of him. But finally, Christopher's had enough. And as he's running He looks over his shoulder as he's running, and he says, I'm not a tattletale. I'm a truth teller. (laughs) 
And Ben, of course, had to have the last word. And he yells back at him and says, well, well, you're a truth teller. Who tattletales? <laughs> and he was right. And when God looks at you and me, you know what he says? You're a saint who sins. You're a saint who sins. Back to those earlier questions. Can a Christian be an alcoholic? Absolutely not. But a Christian who is a saint can be addicted to alcohol. Yeah, I understand why people want people to say that. They're trying to break the, the whole, you know, deception and people not being honest with themselves and thinking they don't have a problem. I get that, but we're still a saint addicted to alcohol. Can a Christian be a liar? No. But a Christian can be a saint and is a saint who lies, and sometimes they lie a lot. Here's the biggie. Can a Christian be a sinner? No. Because the sinner died with Christ on the cross. That person's gone. We've been resurrected with Christ spiritually already. And we've been resurrected or born again as a new creation who is a saint. We're not a sinner and we're not both. See, God doesn't use behavior to define us. Sins don't, de- don't define us as sinners. We're defined by the new birth. We're saints. You're a holy one, so stop calling yourself a sinner. Stop calling yourself names. Start agreeing with God. Find out what he says about you, and you call yourself what God calls you. You agree with him, and stop agreeing with the enemy because he hates you, and he doesn't want you to know this stuff. He wants you just to grovel in your pride or in your self-pity or in your defeat or in your despair or in your depression or in your anxiety. He wants you to agree, oh, that's just who I am. No, it's not. You struggle with it, yes, but it's not who you are. We are who God says we are. That is the final word. And as they used to say on the game show, that's the final answer. Well, we've looked at the issue of your view of God, your, your view of yourself. Now let's look at one final one, your view of how Christianity works. And here's what it is. Christians don't need to focus on right and wrong. Let's look at Genesis 2.9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden, or the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to talk about both of these trees. They were real trees. They were in the middle of the garden. But they're also symbolic of something. They're symbolic of two different ways of living every single day. And the choice we're going to look at is a choice you and I have all the time, every day. They were in the middle of the garden because I think that's representative too, symbolic that it is our daily choice. Let's look at the tree of a knowledge of good and evil first. First thing I want you to notice about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not just the tree of the knowledge of evil. It's also the tree of the knowledge of good. We could interchange the words good and evil for right and wrong. It means the same thing. It wasn't just the tree of the knowledge of doing the wrong thing. It was also the tree of doing the right thing. And God said, don't eat from it. I don't want you to live from right and wrong. 
I didn't create you for that. I didn't make you for that. And as those, any of us in here, all who have been brought into the family of God through faith in Jesus, God doesn't want you to live by right and wrong. You see, when you live by right and wrong, and you can even take the Bible and make it about right and wrong, you can, you can take the whole Bible and make it about right and wrong. Here's what we do. We turn Christianity from a relationship into a checklist. And it becomes checklist. And it may not even be in the Bible. We can come up with our own checklist. Let me give you a, a real a common example. Now, it's great to read the Bible consistently. It's great to pray often. Even to have a time where you just set apart time with the Lord, that's fine. That's awesome. But if we're not careful, we can take those two things and turn them into a daily checklist. I read my Bible. I prayed. Check, check. I'll have a good day today. Oh, I didn't have time this morning to read my Bible. I couldn't check those off. It's going to be a bad day. And that's how we think of how life works, of how Christianity works. And you know what we end up doing? If Christianity is about right and wrong, here's what you have to do. You've got to try harder and harder to do what's right and try harder and harder not to do what's wrong. So the whole thing becomes about one one issue. Try harder. Try harder. Try harder to be a better Christian. Try harder to please God. Try harder to pray more. Try harder to witness. Try harder to serve. Good things. things. Those things are from God. But it's not about right and wrong. You live that way, I can, I can just tell you one thing will happen. You'll get burned out, and if you're not careful, you'll leave the church. Because you're saying, I'm worn out. If this is what Christianity is, ugh can't stand it. That's what happened to me, by the way. I was a pastor, and I didn't understand this whole thing. I thought about good and evil, right and wrong. I didn't know it. I didn't understand it at the time. And so I thought, boy, if I just pray long enough, and if I read the Bible long enough, if I memorize enough scriptures, if I fast long enough, God will work. He'll come down. He'll come down in our church. He'll, he'll work mightily. And, you know, again, those are things I think God wants us to do. But because they were a checklist, when I began to unravel on the inside, kind of like Byron talked about earlier, I couldn't figure out why I was unraveling. I thought, this is no abundant life. Where is that? The only frame of reference I had for how to deal with that was guess what? You want to guess what it was? Try harder. So I went from praying 30 minutes a day to an hour a day. Reading the Bible for 15 minutes just on my own, 30 minutes. Memorizing one scripture a week to memorizing an entire passage. Fasting once a month to fasting every week. I'm serious. You know what happened? Burned out. For Jesus. But he wasn't asking me to do any of that, see. That wasn't, that wasn't him. That was the knowledge of good and evil. That was living by right and wrong. And I told my wife one night, I said, if this is all there is to being a Christian, it doesn't work, and I give up. And I did. I wasn't leaving Jesus, but i tell you what I was leaving. I was leaving the Jesus I had created in my own mind. 
and I needed to because that wasn't the real Jesus. You see, the tree of life, which we want to end with here, the tree of life is about Jesus. It's about Jesus in us. It's, 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 the, it's the Zoe life of God. It's, it's him in us. He wants to live in us, to love us, as we saw earlier, and to then express himself through us in the power of the Spirit every day. In everything we do, he wants to live through us. He wants to read your Bible through you. He wants to serve through you. He wants to go to work not only with you, but do it through you. You say, well, does that mean I just sit around and wait for him to do something? No, we have responsibilities. You just go do them. Trusting him to do those things through you. He even wants to drive your car through you. And the way some of you came in the parking lot, you really need for Jesus to drive through you, you know. The tree of life. That's living dependent on Christ in us. Not Jesus up in heaven. He is there on the throne, but Jesus in us. I want to challenge you sometimes to pray like this. Good morning, Lord. Good morning. He's in us, we who believe. He's in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. You, you heard earlier a wonderful scripture. And as we get ready to look at it, I want to tell you something about this whole checklist idea Here's what God says about this. There are no checklists to keep. None. Zero for him. Now, if you want to have one for going grocery shopping, good. But not for Christianity. You need to let go of that. Let's look at Galatians 2.20 that Byron quoted earlier. <clears throat> and then I want to give you a modern-day illustration of that. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives where? In me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith, or it can say from the faith or with the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's say that you and I leave here today, you go eat lunch, and it's been a tough week, it's been stressful, and you say, I'm going to go to the gym, and I'm going to play basketball. Now, if, if you don't play basketball, just bear with me. Just stay with me, okay? I think you'll understand what I'm saying. But you're out there by yourself, and you're shooting around. You're going, oh, this is great. I just go by myself, just doing this. And suddenly you hear somebody yell across the gym, hey, can I shoot with you? You turn around and look, and guess who it is? It's the college player of the year. And you're going, that's cool. Yeah, come on. Come shoot with me. And so you're shooting around, and it's really cool until he says, you want to play a game against me? You go, well, I guess so. And so you begin to play against this college player, and you've got a big problem. You think you know how to play basketball until you play against this guy. It could be a girl, depending on which college player you're talking about. And you're just getting beaten terribly. It's not even close. Every game. Finally, you go time out. You go out to the water fountain. You're getting something to drink. And then you hear another voice behind you coming up and saying, hey, I, I see you be getting beaten playing basketball with this guy. Would you like some help? And you turn around. It's the professional, the NBA most valuable player. Now, around here, we know that Steph Curry, right? And so he says, 
I'd like to help you. You go, good, tell me what to do. And he says, well, I could tell you what to do, but I've got something better. I've actually figured out a way to step into people's body, and if they will depend on me, I will play basketball through them. And you go, hey, sounds good to me. Step in. So he steps in. You go back out to play basketball, and you still got a problem. You still think you know how to play basketball. You keep getting beaten. You know why? Because you're depending on you and not him. And then you keep hearing him little by little with a very gentle voice saying, trust me. Depend on me, my strength, my abilities, my experience, my wisdom. And slowly you learn to do that. Sometimes you forget. But you learn little by little to depend on him. And guess what? You start winning. You start beating the college player of the year. You get my point, don't you? We got Jesus in us, and our problem is we think we know how to live life. Even for him sometimes, we think we know how to live for him. He's saying, no, me through you. Depend on me. So I'm going to conclude with what I call the seven-day no-checklist challenge. And it's simply this. So for the next seven days, forget your checklist. Would every, every day, would you ask, literally ask Jesus to live his life in and through you? You say, why seven days? I'm just trying to get you started. That's all. So bow in prayer for me. If you want to pray this, to ask Jesus to live for you, just follow along in your heart. Talk to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, I admit that I've tried hard to live as a Christian to keep my checklist of right and wrong for way too long. I'm ready to begin depending on Jesus Christ to live in and through me instead. In my mind, I take my checklist and burn it into ashes. Now that it is gone, Jesus, I ask you to live in and through me for the next seven days. Holy Spirit, please remind me not to go back to my checklist, but to rely on Jesus instead. I pray this is the beginning of how I will live the Christian life for the remainder of my life. By your grace, amen. Amen.